Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, good morning. I want to read from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and this is the Word of God. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is a very important account And we only know what happened because Jesus spoke the words to his friends and they were recorded for our benefit. And it records one of the more important episodes in the Gospels, especially because it has incredible implications for the way that we live our lives. And and so I entitled it The Tempting of Jesus. Most people call it The Temptation of Jesus, but for some reason the way that sounds, it almost sounds like the devil won. Like Jesus was tempted and he succumbed. The devil made a heroic effort to tempt Jesus. And the glorious outcome was that Jesus was victorious. Now I want to ask a question to you. What does temptation look like to you? What are some of the things that draw out of you an immediate reaction? That's the most tasteful way I could present that one. Um, Something that just calls to your spirit, that makes you daydream about it, plan ahead for it, save up for it, long for it, want something in your hands. What is that thing that makes you lust? The thing that occupies your mind that when you see it, I don't know what that's about. (laughs) It makes you want to sacrifice things for it. What is that thing? Maybe it's travel. Maybe it's, I don't know how that got in there. Uh, I, I certainly worry if this is one of, the, maybe for some of you during this whole slideshow, you've been hearing that song from uh, that, that musical, These Are a Few of My Favorite Things, right? Now, obviously, some of those things are illegal. Some of them are quite harmful. But others among those things are just simply desirable. They have a powerful pull on us, and they tempt us in the sense that They are so overpowering in the way they define our motivations that it becomes, it clouds our judgment. It makes us forget the stated priority structures in our heart. 
regardless of whether it's an illegal, dangerous thing or simply a powerfully desirable thing, all temptation at every level latches on to something deep within us, a hunger or a need or a drive. And if those things didn't exist in us, then those things simply would not be tempting. And that's why for some people, certain things have no power, right? I do not get tempted by certain things at all. When I see, if I saw a table full of cocaine, I'd look at it and just go, it just does nothing for me. But when I see the, the, the home screen for Call of Duty Black Ops, my jaw clenches. I feel like an acid taste in my mouth of anticipation. And so the point is, temptation latches onto that which already exists in us. And it is an enticement to do what we know is wrong or harmful or to take something which is a natural desire or a drive and see it perverted so that we're tempted to take grasp of that thing in the timing or in a degree or in an intensity or in a manner which is not pleasing to God and which is harmful to people. In other words, temptation is an enticement to get for ourselves something which God has not meant for us in that time or in that way. To take hold of something which ultimately will do harm to us and to those around us and will bring dishonor to God. Here's the way James put it. And James, the brother of Jesus, writing in this letter to the scattered church, he writes, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, listen to this language, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So it's clear that temptation, while we might say, ooh, I'm tempted to just leave early and watch the Bears game right when it starts, I'm tempted. Those are kind of like silly, you know, it's not a completely trivial thing, but they're not, some temptations are so powerful, are so dangerous, that if we succumb to them, it will have lethal implications for us. It may end up in the loss of your physical earthly life. It may end up in the loss of your spiritual vitality. And so temptation and sin are no laughing matter. And the truth is to be, fall, to be human in a fallen world is to contend with temptation and failure until the day that we die. I don't think it's possible to be human, especially in this role and especially in the era into which we were born. It is simply impossible to walk in this world without dealing with temptation and failure on a regular basis. And so it shouldn't surprise us then that Jesus, who took on flesh to join us, to identify with us, to come near us, he himself also endured a period of testing. Right after he had been baptized in the Jordan River, right after the Spirit of God descended in a physical form, rested on him, and a voice from heaven affirmed, this is God's Son, whom he loves and is well pleased with. After that glorious inauguration to his earthly ministry, Jesus then immediately is led by the Holy Spirit into the barren wilderness in, in the Judean desert. And for 40 days and 40 nights, it says that he was tempted by the devil... And on top of all that, and it seems to indicate in Mark and Luke's account that the tempting, the, the spiritual attacks lasted throughout the 40 days. It wasn't just the culmination of 40 days, but throughout this period, he was being severely tested by the enemy again and again and again. Now, it's interesting that the devil is introduced to us as the tempter. 
For if temptation is an inducement, an enticement to do what we know is wrong, then that's not just something that happens. There is also an entity, a personal being, who is the enemy of God and all of God's work, and he is the one who so often entices us. He's latching onto something that already exists, but you know, it'd be great if he left us alone, but he will not do that. He is so committed to thwart the work of God that in your life he will be very active. He will kick you when you're down. He will punch you when you're not looking. Satan is the king of the sucker punch. You know what a sucker punch is? It's the way a coward fights. When you're not looking, he, he clocks you from the side. Do you see that ninja move? Caught that paper. He clocks you when you're not looking, and that's what Satan will do. And that's why it's so strange when sometimes the, the severest spiritual attack and temptation happens right on the heels of some of your greatest high points in your spiritual life. Right after you've done something amazing. So many pastors claim that Sunday afternoon, their day of rest, or Monday when they're off, that day which should be restorative and replenishing is often the day where the greatest temptations accost us and where we endure some of the hardest spiritual attack against our character and our integrity. So there's Jesus in the wilderness of Judea. And this is, this is a picture of that zone. And it hasn't changed much since the, the days of Jesus. It is a boring, dry, lifeless place. And for 40 days, here's Jesus wandering through this place not eating anything, being around no other living being except the wild beasts. And then Satan comes, and he tempts him, and here's the good news. Okay, some of you like to look at the last page of the book at the beginning. The good news is Jesus emerges from this test victorious. And because he wins, it gives us great hope and confidence that in our own struggle against temptation and the darkness in us that wants to come out and the darkness all around us that wants to come in, we also can have hope for victory because of what Jesus has done. There are so many ways I can go. And honestly, I think any, any preacher can preach from this text for like six or eight hours. But I want to focus on two ways that Jesus' victory leads to our victory. Okay? And so I want to look at two ways that happens. And the first is that Jesus' victory is victory for us in our temptation. A temptation is going to be a part of everyday life. Every single day, temptation will, will hit you. And when I look at the rhythm of this encounter between Jesus and Satan, it reminds me of a fencing match where Satan strikes, Jesus parries, and then he counters. And it's like that for three rounds. Satan tries to get Jesus to, to fall, and Jesus blocks it, and then he punches back. <clears throat> there are three distinct temptations, and most sermons on this text just belabor the distinctions between those three temptations. It details every little aspect of it, and you can go for hours talking about what's behind each of those. I'm not going to do that this morning, um, but I want to simply survey them because I think these three temptations are symbolic of the majority of the ways that, that we're tempted as human beings. They all latch onto a core human drive or need, and then they call into question whether we truly trust God to meet that need in our lives. That's the way most temptation works. There's something we long for or need or want, and then temptation is the enemy asking us honestly, do you really think that God is going to give it to you? Or do you have to go 
and get it your way. That's a pattern we're going to see in our own lives. So look at the first temptation. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, despite what it sounds like, that question, if you are the Son of God, is not Satan um, trying to question Jesus' identity. It's more, actually, there's two ways to use the word if in Greek. This is the way that presumes. It's almost like he's saying, since you are the Son of God, because you are. And in other words, he's leveraging on the fact, you are the Son of God. What on earth are you doing in this desert starving? You are the Son of God. Make some food and eat. This is preposterous. What it's latching on to is anybody who loves God and is loved by God should never have to go through what you're going through. Does that sound familiar? What he's saying is, because I'm on God's team, I should never have to go through a season like this. It's ridiculous that one of God's children should have to face this kind of hardship. And that's exactly what Satan's picking at. He's saying, aren't you the son of God? What are you starving for? Tell these stones to become bread and eat. It's not just about food. Yeah, Jesus had fasted for 40 days. He was hungry, but the real temptation was about more than just his creaturely needs. It's about this self-pity, which is so easy to latch onto with us. And that's what makes some of our life struggles so difficult, is we have this idea that I don't deserve this. I am a child of God. Life should be better than this for me. And we begin to resent our circumstances. And in that moment of weakness, we are sorely tempted to stray from God and mistrust him. So this first temptation has to do with sustenance, doesn't it? And the core question about trust is, do you really trust God to provide for you and meet your needs? And think about it for a minute. Isn't that a, a central question around which so much of our temptation swirls? Do you really believe that God's got your back? He wants you to have the things that your heart longs for. Look at the second temptation. By the way, this is how Jesus answers. He answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8.3 verbatim there. Look at the second temptation. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if, or rather, since you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So now Satan's kicking it up a notch, because now the devil is using the Bible to try to prompt him. He's trying to point out, didn't God say prophetically about you that you will have special protection? This temptation revolves around security, another basic human need. How many of you feel really driven by this need to feel safe. It's hard for you to trust because unless you feel safe around people, you never let your heart out. You, you make money not because you like nice things, but because you're terrified of a situation arising that you cannot buy your way out of. And so security is a huge defining drive in the human experience. And as Satan tempts Jesus in this area, the question of trust in God that he's picking at is this. By the way, this is, this, is like, this is actually not the real temple. The real temple is destroyed centuries ago. But this is a scale, scale model replica in Jerusalem. And most likely, it, Jesus was being brought to the top of that place called, called Herod's Portico. It's about a 450-foot drop. It was what passed for a skyscraper in those days. 
And 450 feet, even in this day and age, if you're looking down without a, a rope, a safety line, it's scary. And so this, this central question he's picking at is, do you really trust God to protect you and keep you secure and safe? Because if we really trusted God to keep us safe, we wouldn't be working so hard to give ourselves assurances in that arena. And so the central question, again, this is, think about it in your own life, how many temptations latch onto this need that you have to feel safe so that you will compromise your standards, you will take things in ways and in times and degrees that are not good for you because these things make you feel safe. And the central question is, do you really trust God to protect you? Let's look at the third, and this is, this is his response. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here's the last temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. I mean, just think about this situation the devil is talking to the Son of God and saying, Hey, why don't you worship me and I'll give you everything? If he has the guts and the audacity to say those things to Jesus, do you think he will hesitate to say those things to you? To parade before you intoxicating, seductive promises of the glories that could be yours if you would forget your allegiance to God and instead say, look, you're the one who runs this world. I'd rather roll my dice with you. As he's showing him the kingdoms of the world in all their splendor. Now, these are probably uh, more modern than the things he would have seen. But I'm sure he would have looked at questions of significance. You know, this, this idea of don't you want your life to count for something? Put another way, don't you want to know that you were here? That you showed up? Don't you want people saying your name, remembering you? Don't you want your life on earth to echo through the halls of history? Who wants to be utterly forgotten? Who wants to think my claim to fame is I lived a completely average and forgettable life? Even my children won't remember me. The thing is, everybody's trying to leave a mark. We want to know that our lives counted for something. He would have shown him the great cities of the world. And in every city in the world, there are, there's a secret city, the place where the truly rich and powerful live. It's a city we don't get to see. And if you've ever tasted or dabbled in that, it is seductive, intoxicating. I've had a few rare glimpses into how the other side lives. And I'm going to tell you, it deeply affected me. I'm a pastor, but that doesn't protect me from much. Right? When I was in the lap of luxury, something stirred in my spirit. He would have shown him the military might. It is a pretty impressive thing to watch thousands of soldiers march in perfect formation. Did you ever see those photos that came out of China's 60th anniversary after the revolution? It's pretty impressive. These people, perfect. I mean, this, the formations are so tight and clean. He would have shown him palatial mansions, the kind of homes that we dream of living in. He would have shown him all, and that's not a cruise ship from a company. That's somebody's private boat. You can land a helicopter on that sucker. He would have let him hear the applause of men. And there's all these things in the splendor of the kingdoms of the world that are so powerfully seductive. It affects you. It stirs something in you. And if someone would promise you these things, you will bite. There was a season in my life where I was offered a job that I know I shouldn't have accepted. I was a pastor at the time. 
And I'm not, it's not drug dealing or anything like that. But I was a pastor at the time, and I needed to focus on this work, but I also needed to feed my family. And this at a time when Harvest simply was not at a place to pay the bills and to do that. And somebody offered me a job promising lots of money. And I accepted it. And I accepted it not only because I wanted to take care of my family, but because, let's just face it, when someone offers you a six-figure income, it does something to you. You're like, yeah! Somebody's going to pay me that much money because I'm that good. And it stirred up in me things I didn't expect to find there, things I thought I'd outgrown. I was surprised at the powerful seduction of the glory of this world. You are not immune. I am not immune. None of us are. And that's the kind of thing which he often parades in front of us. And so in these questions of significance, the central question is, do you really trust God to make your life count for something? Do you really trust God that if you live your life his way, that you will actually matter, that you'll actually have been here in a powerful way? Now, you see the pattern that's emerging here is the strike is is Satan picking at this core human need and then picking at the scab by asking a question that really is saying, do you really trust God for this need? Do you really trust God for sustenance? Do you really trust God for your security? Do you really trust God for your significance? And that's the thing he's picking at. And so that's the strike. And what does Jesus do every single time? He blocks it and counters by reciting a Bible verse, doesn't he? Each time, that's what he does. But here's the thing, okay? Here's the problem I have with that pattern. What exactly is the example we're supposed to follow here? When I first became Christian, I was given the Navigator's Bible, you know, topical Bible memory card pack, and I still have it. It's in my desk, and there are all these little index cards with flashcards of Bible verses organized topically so that I was charged up. My gun was loaded. Name any sin, any besetting temptation, and I had a Bible verse to just kill it, right? Lust, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so my gun was loaded for bear, man. You could throw any temptation my way. I knew just the right verse. So what is the lesson here? That you will escape all temptation and moral failure if you happen to be a walking concordance, if you know exactly what verse to aim at every single thing? Let me ask you, has that worked for any of you? Have you just mindlessly recited Bible verses like Harry Potter going, Spilliarum, you know? And, and does that work for you? You go, you know, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. Oh, look at that. No lust whatsoever. I've become a eunuch right here on my feet. Of course that doesn't happen. Sometimes God may supernaturally intervene. But the frustrating part of that teaching is it sounds so spiritual, but in actual practice, what I find is it doesn't really work. I don't think it's enough to just know the Bible verses and recite them in a timely manner. That can't possibly be all that Jesus was doing for victory. And so I'm just going to be real honest with you right now. What you're not going to hear from this pulpit today is get your flashcards and throw those flaming arrows right back at Satan. Here's what I think is a real challenge. It's not just to know the Bible more or better, but the entirety of Christian life hinges on what you mean when you say that. 
I believe to know the Bible better or to know it more is not simply to jam more intellectual knowledge in there because, frankly, I don't sin out of ignorance. I don't sin because nobody told me, hey, do you know it's wrong to look at that stuff? I'm not stupid. I know what right and wrong is. Intellectually, I'm aware of what the Bible says. Here's the real challenge when it comes to the Word of God and us. The real challenge is believing that what God says is actually true. That's the hard part. It's easy to understand. A child could understand the Bible. But then Jesus also suggests it's easier for children also to believe the Bible because they're more willing to accept that what God says is what's real. You know, I see Jesus countering back. And with each one of these temptations, the verse he uses and what he's saying back is an exact counter to the temptation. But he's not just, in, he's just not imitating Harry Potter and throwing spells out there, abracadabra. What he's doing is giving voice to his most deeply held beliefs about reality and about the world. In response to temptation number one in the area of sustenance, trusting God to meet my needs, look at what he says. He, he says, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What's he really saying? He's saying, I believe we are most energized when we discover and live out God's purpose for our lives. Do you know how many people I've met who are well-fed and well-housed and well-clothed and they have everything they want and there's a vacuous look in their eyes? They have good stuff. They're comfortable as creatures. Like the polar bear at the zoo, someone brings him food and he's got a nice environment. It's climate-controlled. But who would rather be a, would you rather be a polar bear in the Arctic or a polar bear in the zoo? Be honest. Some of you, don't you just feel what I'm feeling? You go to the zoo and you're like, I feel sorry for these animals. We've simulated their natural habitat, but they don't even have to forage for food anymore. We've sucked from them everything that makes that otter an otter. And we put them in this big aquarium that's fake otter universe. And his otterness is lost to him. What self-respecting otter, if the door was open, wouldn't go, forget this, I'm going to otter it like crazy out there where otters really go. I think that at the basic level, we think what we most want is to have fun, be comfortable, and enjoy all the good things, the finer things in life. I'm not suggesting those things are morally wicked. I think they're so incomplete. If that's all you're living for, you don't know what good stuff is. And the belief that Jesus is giving is not just an incantation. It's real. He says, I truly believe that we are most satisfied when we're being ourselves as God designed us to be. Not just when we're full as creatures. Look at the second temptation. It's about security. It's about questioning, do you really trust God to keep you safe, to, to make you feel secure? And Jesus said to him, again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The real belief that he's giving is true security comes from trusting God and taking him at his word, not from worrying and striving on our own. True security doesn't come from questioning God. It comes from trusting God. If you can't take God's word at face value, what can you hear in this universe that will give you any measure of comfort? 
And so what Jesus is saying is, I don't find my security with my eyes by looking at my situation. I find my security by believing that what God has promised me will always unfailingly come to pass. Maybe not when I want it to, but I am assured in this, God does not lie. He does not sleep. He does not fail. And true security comes from believing God, not from questioning God or striving to substitute for God with my own strength. Look at temptation number three. It scratches at the scab of significance. It's asking the question, do you really trust God to make your life count for something? And the belief Jesus counters with is simply this, the true measure of a human life is not the mark we leave behind, but the impact that God makes through us. Let me tell you something. You know who is utterly forgettable is who the wealthiest person was in 1965 in Western Europe. Does anybody know? Who cares? Who cares? Do you know who people remember? They remember Billy Graham. They remember Mother Teresa. They remember people who by earthly standards were stupid. They forsook fame. They didn't cut a movie deal. Mother Teresa, if she had cut movie deals and book deals, would have been fabulously wealthy. She lived among the most indigent, dirty street people, people with infectious diseases. And she gave of herself, and she was truly significant. You walk around the streets and say, hey, um, who is Dwayne, what's his name, Hagadon? Does anybody know who he is? I looked him up. He happens to own a giant investment company, runs newspapers, real estate, resorts. He's the richest man in Idaho. He owns the largest home in Idaho. You walk around this Woodfield Mall and say, hey, who's Dwayne Hagedone? Does anybody know who he is? Nobody knows. You ask anybody, who's Mother Teresa? Everybody knows that name. See, we dream of significance But we're seduced by Satan to trade in significance for creaturely satisfaction, for gluttony, for making others envious of us, resentful of us, taking aim in their crosshairs to eventually beat us and replace us. What Jesus says is, I truly believe that significance doesn't come from trying to make a big splash with my own butt but from letting God do something truly significant through me. This should give us courage because as we watch Jesus battle temptation in his own life, this pattern becomes our pattern. Not simply reciting Bible verses, but dwelling on these powerful truths of the faith, richly meditating on God's word until it's not just words we know, but truths upon which our feet rest firmly. And as we exercise it this way, as we give voice to our deepest beliefs, I promise you, you will see greater and greater measures of victory in your own battles against sin. You you know why we say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, and then we still look at that porn on the internet? It's because we don't really believe that seeing God is something that's even possible or that it's a good thing. But anyone who has seen God in that way can't 
Their eyes are ruined for anything less. Let me just quickly, and that was the majority of this message, so don't panic. Let me give you one last way that Jesus' victory equals our victory. And that is victory not just in the moment of temptation, but in the eventuality of our failure. If we follow the example of Christ, we will see a greater measure of victory. We will grow spiritually because we will come to really believe God's word and it will be a true weapon in our fight against sin. But I promise you this. You will fail. None of us will be perfect this side of heaven. I promise that as much as you fight against temptation, I mean, some of you know that the right thing to do is stay and eat a bagel and talk with your friends and fellowship and build our church. But some of you will still run for the parking lot, get in your car, and try to watch the Bears game right when it starts. I just, that's a reality of life. As much as I just called you out and shamed you publicly, you're still going to show us your butt as you're running for the car. And you know what? I don't hold it against you that much. Because I know one thing is predictable and tried and true, and that is try as we might, while the trajectory of our lives is ascending and we are growing, we will fail. And if I just preach this message, or you follow Jesus' example, you have the right Bible verses, you really believe him, and you'll never sin again, I'd be a liar. You are going to sin again. I'm going to sin again. It's going to happen. Here's the good news. It is precisely in the reality that we're going to fail for sure that the victory of Jesus becomes the great news, our great hope. There is this beautiful parallel, and I wish I had an hour to develop it more, but let me just give you the Notes version, okay? Throughout Scripture, there's this beautiful parallel between the life of Jesus and the history of Israel. From being called into Egypt and called out of Egypt, from being spared when one of the kings killed all the sons, the baby Hebrew boys. All, there's all these parallels, and, and basically the point of those parallels is this. That in every place where Israel failed to be the faithful child of God, the Son of God was faithful. In every place where Israel was a disappointment to God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was well-pleasing to the Father. In other words, he retraced the steps of God's chosen people to show that while we, the Israelites, and us as the church will consistently disappoint God and fail him, his one and only son never let him down. One of the periods of greatest disappointment for God as a heavenly father was in the wilderness wanderings of Israel after they left Egypt and slavery there. And while they were wandering in the wilderness, these people found every which way to rebel against God and disappoint him. They grumbled and complained constantly. And if you survey their complaints, it's interesting how they fall right in line with some of the core needs and temptations we face as human beings. Exodus 16.3, Oh, that we were back in Egypt, they moaned. It would have been better if the Lord had killed us there. At least there we had plenty to eat. Never mind you were slaves, but at least there we had plenty to eat. But now you have brought us into this desert to starve us to death. They were so happy when they left Egypt until they realized they were hungry and there's no food growing out there. And suddenly the questions of sustenance produced serious doubt about God's goodness and their ability to trust him. Look at this other complaint. 
As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. Remember, Pharaoh sent his army like, what did we just do? Our whole labor force is left. Go get him back. And so he sends his army and chariots out. And as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them in formation, a huge army kicking up clouds of dust. And they were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? Isn't it funny how fear for our safety makes us completely question God, makes our trust in God dissolve like powder in water? Look at this last complaint. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountains, they gathered around Aaron and said, Hey, come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. At the heart of that complaint is this. What are we doing sitting around in the desert? This is stupid. Even though it's the wilderness, at least let's get moving. Moses is up there doing who knows what in that mountain full of lightning and smoke. He's just up there hanging out. Let's go. Let's, let's do something. Do you understand that that's about significance? That's about saying that whatever it takes, we don't want to be the laughing stock of the nations. We don't want to huddle around campfires in the desert. We don't want to feel like nobody is leading us somewhere. At each of these complaints, Israel is failing God at one of the basic places where God has promised to meet us. God has promised to provide for us, to protect us, to give us a life worth living, to give purpose to our lives. He's promised all those things. That is at the heart of his contract with us. And yet in each one of these key areas, Israel disappoints God through their complaining and their doubt, their rebellion. Isn't it interesting then that as Jesus fights the devil in exactly these same issues, the words he uses to rebuff the devil are words spoken by Moses to a faithless Israel in the wilderness wanderings. He's quoting all the words that Moses said to these people who were a disappointment as if to make the point in the very place where Israel, the faithless son, disappointed God. Jesus Christ, the faithful son, perfectly resonated with the heart of God. Now here's why that's important if you're falling asleep. Because in those exact same areas, you will be a horrible disappointment to God. You will grab things for yourself because you don't believe God will give them to you. You will cut corners to keep yourself safe because you don't believe that God has got your back. And you will be sorely tempted to exchange Earthly significance for eternal significance. Fame for true meaningfulness in life. That's something all of us will be weak to. And in that moment of failure, the good news is that God has a faithful son. And the faithfulness and victory of Jesus, the Messiah, tempers God's disappointment with you and me. That's a good time for an amen if you're awake. This is the good news. That even when you bite the dust and you fail God horribly, even when you have no defense, no compelling reason, you just stink as a human being. God says, I can't look at you right now. Let me look at my good son. I hate to admit it, but families do this, don't they? Ugh, you dumb kids. Let's look at the good son. The one who's going to 
give us a future. The one who's going to go to Harvard, the one who obeys mommy and goes to bed at a time, the one who never complains. That's what God is doing. He's saying, every time I look at you guys, I'm reminded of your weakness. But every time I look at my son, I'm reminded of his victory. And the gospel is simply this. Then in the face of our failure, the victory of Jesus is credited to us. That every time you fail, God chooses to look at your Savior instead of you. And to say, while I want to send the floodwaters again over the earth, my son's victory stands over all of those people who belong to him. You will go from this place and you will be sorely tempted, perhaps even today, in this very hour. Let me summarize quickly by saying this. In your temptation, Jesus gives you the victory by showing you that if you believe that what God says is true, if instead of knowing stuff about him, you know him, you really know him, you believe him, you trust him, then as you fight back against temptation with the truth about the way the world really is, God's word, you will have victory. And in ever-increasing measure, following the pattern of Jesus will give you spiritual growth. But here's the other thing. When you fail, and you will, the amazing victory of Jesus is for you, the good news of the gospel. And so here's how we live. We fight against sin. We cling to God's word like it's up to us, but we're not deluded. We know that it's not really up to us. We will fight and strive to believe God and gain the victory over sin. But we know that even when we ultimately fail, our great hope is that Jesus washes us, covers us, stands in the place for us. So that even after failure, I can have the audacity to look at God again and say one more time, let's go. I don't know about you, but that gives me a lot of hope. And I hope that it will energize you in your own fight this year against those things that constantly knock you down. Would you bow with me as we respond to God in prayer? In every place where Israel and the church, where you and I disappoint God, and fail. Jesus Christ, God's Son, was faithful. How powerful then the words that God spoke on the day of Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Maybe sin has been kicking your butt backwards and forwards for a long time. Maybe you're starting to wonder if you're ever going to win that fight. Let me tell you this. You have already won in Jesus Christ. And in ever-increasing measure, as God calls your faith to grow, you will change. You will become stronger. And every time you fail, He will stand in for you and allow you to keep pressing forward. That is hopeful news. That is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ.
I'm going to ask you to let that just wash over you. And then in any way you feel prompted, just respond to God. Now give us a few minutes to do that. Lord, most of us in this room already know your word well enough to know better. So our prayer this morning is not simply that you would teach us more facts about you. Holy Spirit of God, lead us to believe truly in you. What's real is not what we see. What's real is what you say. And I pray that you will give us faith like that so that we will not be so easily seduced, so that we will not waste our lives walking on a road that goes nowhere. Lord, we need you to provide. We need you to protect us. We need you to give us a purpose for this life. And we believe that only from your hand will those things truly come. So we rebuke your enemy and ours. And we beg you to protect us from his schemes, this picking at the scab which is already formed on our own hearts. Help us to trust you, to bring honor to you by believing you. And give us victory day by day in ever-increasing measure. And Lord, in those dark moments of great disappointment where we know we've blown it where we've hurt ourselves and those around us where we've become a stench in your nose on that day look at Jesus who has died to cover us in his victory and in his sacrifice May this always be good news for us. That even in our failure, you are the victor. Thank you for being faithful as a son in every place where we were not. And thank you for sharing your glory with us. We love you, Lord. We are so grateful for the hope you give. Jesus name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you'd like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.